Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Me Athlete Radio. Welcome to No Meat Athlete Radio. This is Doug Hay, and I am joined by um, my the normal host of the show, Matt Fraser. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing very well, Doug. How about you? Doing great. So this is going to be episode 15, and today we're going to do something a little different. Um, Matt just got back from his 100-mile uh, run, the Burning River 100-miler out in Ohio, and um, I haven't actually discussed anything with him um, about the race, so I am just as interested as all of you about hearing uh, his reports. So we're just going to kind of go through a bunch of hydration and pacing and all kinds of interesting stuff that I think um, readers and listeners will be will be into. So, Matt, um, are you awake? <laughs> I am awake. Uh, I got a good solid sleep last night and the night before that. Um... Not so much the previous two nights. I, I had hoped to get a lot of sleep like the day before the race because I had watched uh, Michael Arnstein has a, has a video on YouTube about ultra running, uh-huh. and he, he in that really stressed the importance of getting a lot of sleep, and said how he like adjusts his schedule the week before the race and like tries to go to bed at 8 p.m. and make sure he's up by 3 a.m. so that he's right on the race schedule. Well, I did you know I had hoped, kind of hoped to do that, but then I had a friend come to visit. And a bunch of other stuff, you know, two kids and all that, and it just it just didn't happen. Yeah. So I I ended up tossing and turning in bed uh, until about midnight and had a three thirty alarm uh, for the race. So it was it was not much sleep, maximum four hours. Yikes. Uh, yeah, and and you know I I don't think that was it was a huge impact on my race at least. I never really felt tired uh, in like the sleepy kind of way at least. So I don't know. And then I actually I fell asleep within. Within ten minutes of finishing the race, I I laid down, I, I like just kind of laid back, and and I think a minute later I was asleep, and I just woke up, and then and then like a couple minutes after that, I I fell asleep with my head just in my hand, kind of like leaning on the, on the on a bench we were on, yeah. So I was I was very tired after that, but but yeah, doing well now. There was a little debate on Twitter um, whether or not you're gonna stay awake long enough to have a beer, but uh, I guess not. <laughs> uh, I did not. No. <laughs> But right. I I did have a beer later on in the afternoon, oh, half good. a beer, so not that much. And then I, I like in between bouts of sleep, it was I, I just really just slept the whole day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right. Well, let's back up a little bit. So uh, it was up in Ohio, um, mm-hmm. and you went up, uh, I guess, the day before and stayed out there. Yes, I went up to I went up almost all the way on Thursday, and then uh, we met my dad out there or in somewhere in Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania. And drove the west rest of the way Friday morning, so we were there by Friday around noon, and uh, uh, yeah, so I had you know had a day, roughly a day of of downtime before the race started, and that all worked out pretty well. Good. And you you said your dad was joined you, and I know your wife Erin was there and your kids. Uh, yes. Did you have a big crew? Yes, I had them, uh, including my dad's motorhome. He drive he has like a. Oh, nice. I don't even know what the name of it is or what what kind of class it is, but it's 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 small, like it's kind of like a van, but it's has plenty of sleeping room and all kinds of cool stuff in it. So that's a really cool like crew vehicle for this especially. It was great, and my mom came out too. She ended up doing a lot of work with watching the kids while Aaron was kind of like the head crew person, and uh, 
did you know a lot of kind of preparing meals and things like that for me just because my diet of course makes it different than a normal ultra runner's diet uh, I can't really eat that many of the foods of the aid stations except for fruit and gels really right so you know it, like you know, there's like soup and things like that and I, maybe this place had vegetarian soup but it's sort of hard to hard to count or I should say vegan soup um, but it, you know you can't really count on that and often it's not really known because each aid station is manned by a different like they'll put a different running club in charge of certain aid stations. So you don't know exactly what you're going to get. Right. Uh, so I couldn't really count on that. And uh, the final member of my crew was Greg Watkins, who was uh, he was a Nomad Athlete reader and sent me this great email like uh, probably like five months ago or so about all these changes he'd made in his life and uh, how big a role Nomad Athlete had played in that for him and how he wanted to do his first ultra. So I emailed him. Oh, he's from Ohio, by the way. So I emailed him and said, you know, why don't you uh, come pace this thing for me, pace the, the second half for me. So uh, he, he ended up doing that. He joined me at mile 65 and ran the entire rest of the thing, wow. uh, having, having never run more than a marathon before. Cool. So, uh, yeah, that was that was very cool for both of us, I think, to, to get to help each other out. And, you know, I have helped him out uh, in this way. He got to run his first ultra with, with someone uh, and I, of course, enjoyed the help uh, during the second half through the night. Uh, right, hundred. So that was my that was my crew. Oh wow! All right. Yeah. So you're so you're standing there, um, you know, at four o'clock in the morning or whatever, and looking around. What what kind of people were running this race? Did it feel like I know it was, it was maybe the hundred mile U.S. Championship or something? Is that right? Yes. But, uh, um, yeah, it was USA Track and Field. Their uh, I think I guess it's their hundred mile trail championship. I think so. Maybe there's a road one, and maybe there are other distances, you know, other ultra distances. I'm not sure, but um, you know, I didn't really know. It was it was really dark out, so you could see a bunch of headlamps, and you could <laughs> you could see people. It was 5 a.m. when the start actually was, um, so you could see them. But I didn't I didn't notice that it was any um, particularly fast group of people. I mean, if you look at the race results, there were a lot of really great times. Right. Uh, but but you know I it, I've never been at a hundred before, so you know it kind of looked to me like like the start of a of a fifty mile race that I've any of those that I've done, and I you know I'm not that big of a, of an ultra running like fan in the sense of following the the top guys and girls, so I don't I don't really know who's who. If there was anyone there for me to recognize, I I would not have recognized them unless it was yeah. Scott Jurek or something. Right. Right. Oh, cool. So so um. You know, you start, I guess, in the dark. Your first few hours are probably in the dark, but you're um, moved along pretty well, I guess. At, you know, what, when uh, when did it feel like you were really in a hundred mile race? At what point? Ah, uh, that's a good question. I mean, it it kind of kind of did from the beginning because I treated it different from any fifty I've ever done, in that I I had a pace in mind and I was not going to go faster than that pace, at least not not appreciably faster than than that pace. Right. Uh, and that was 13 minute pace for the first half, and I did not want to go faster than that, so I I made sure that every 25 minutes I did a five minute walk break, which okay. uh, was something that, that someone suggested in the comments of a Nomad Athlete post, um, and that that turned out to be a theme for me that there were probably a half dozen things that I had never heard of uh, that that commenters had suggested that I ended up using or doing for this race, so. Um, that was very cool to, to kind of ex- just realize how much everyone had helped me and how much I was really applying what I had learned from people. Right. Uh, and that was one of them, and, th- and I think that was a really important thing to do for me. I walked – I made sure I walked all the hills. I walked anything that was steep downhill. 
uh, anything that was uphill and like any flat that even you know looked at me funny i i made sure to walk at it from the beginning because you know how those ultras are you can what looks like a hill in in mile five uh what looks i should say what looks like a flat ground in mile five very often looks like a hill in mile 45 and you're walking okay. everything sure so i made sure that i that i walked those from the very beginning uh and then in addition to that i did the, the five minutes every 25 i would add five minutes of walking assuming that i hadn't like just walked for five minutes on a huge hill or something uh so okay. So, you know, from the very beginning, it, it did have a different kind of vibe for me because I was – just because I was doing that and I was going so slow. And uh, I guess the noticeable difference is that I wasn't feeling really any fatigue at all. Like I finished that first marathon and didn't feel like I had done anything yet, which which is perfect. That's that's kind of what I had hoped for. Right. And, uh, you know, it's different. And like and by the time I got to, say, mile 35 or so, maybe even 40, I was thinking, man, if this was a 50-mile race, I would be – not that far from being done and I would I'd be feeling pretty fresh right now like you know I've I've never done I've only done 250s in the 12 hour race but I've never ever felt anywhere near that good coming into it and I guess that's because you you don't you know you you go faster but I don't know it was just it was just interesting and it just it just made the 50s seem like not very much and like wow if this was if this was all <laughs> it was and you could stop at 50 that it would be such a such a kind of an easy day uh, so yeah I guess that was sort of the first you know the first time it really felt like I was doing something uh, special or something right. different. Do you credit that to your training or to the way you were pacing and and walking? I mean, I guess it's both because I, I think my first the, my my split for the for the first marathon was something like five forty or something like that. So I mean, if you just took someone off the street and said go run a five forty marathon, uh, you know they would they would have a tough time doing it or or be really out of breath at least or really sore or something so i mean obviously there's there's sort of the base that you build up right and uh can so that you can do that sort of thing without an issue without a problem but yeah but because it was that particular day uh and how how well I, or how how seriously i was taking the pacing um you know that was a big part of it because i certainly when i hit that point in my 12 hour race i think i hit it in four and a half hours and uh you know i was i was feeling it because it was on trails and it was a really hot day. That's another thing. The weather was really great for this, um, at least before the rains started. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, that's a, that's a different story. So yeah, I don't know. It was it was a combination of the training. The training seemed to be good. I really think in hindsight now that it was sufficient what I did, and uh, and of course of course the fact that I I knew what uh, what pace to go that certainly made a big huge difference. Because you know to go out too fast in something like this would just be devastating. I mean if you if you were hit mile forty and just felt like you were done. I don't. I don't see how you can struggle through the next 60 miles. Maybe that's why people talk about how how hard these things can be. Right. But uh, yeah. I I didn't have that pacing issue at least. <laughs> did did it did it seem like others were taking a similar approach to you, walking all the hills and, you know, uh, going pretty slow, or did you feel like you were getting passed by everybody? Uh, in the beginning, I did feel like I was getting passed by everybody, and then, I think after about mile, probably about mile 40. No, after about mile fifty, I I probably passed ten times more people than passed me. So oh, yeah? I think it, yeah, I think it definitely worked. Like, I I just don't even remember anyone passing me after that. Uh, it just nice. it, it was yeah. So that was great, and that it really worked out well in that way. Uh, yeah, I saw some people kind of running more hills than I would. I didn't really notice that anyone was was necessarily taking walk breaks, but uh, there there were certainly a few people who who had kind of like. You know, I could hear watches going off, and then somebody would start walking. So it wasn't sure. necessarily my walk break schedule, but they were they were on their own thing. Cool. 
Yeah, well, I was lucky enough to. Uh, well, uh, Aaron, your wife was was emailing out a few people um, after. I guess every time she saw you, um, yep. which was quite a bit. So it was nice that crew had so much access. Yeah, they had. Runners. They had like. I don't know. There were probably eleven or twelve total access points, which nice. was which is pretty good. I thought. Yeah, and there was, one, I mean, there was one gap of like a marathon between mile forty-one and and sixty-five or so, and that was really tough. And that was actually, as I'm sure we'll get to, um, that was where I had, where I made my biggest mistake and had had the most trouble. But yeah. Uh, anyway, well, but anyway, you were yeah. saying that that you were uh, yeah. Well, the first the first two um two or three emails that she was sending out uh. She mentioned that you were ahead of pace and, and getting a little worried about that. So, I, you know, did you purposely or intentionally, I guess, uh, slow it down after the first marathon? Um, yeah, I was, I was just barely ahead of pace, and every time I saw them, they would tell me that. I think I was like, well, I say just barely, but it was like a minute per mile. I was running like twelve minute miles instead of thirteens, and uh, they they were telling me to watch out. My mom like sent me a text message to watch out, slow down. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I mean, I listened, and I, I really did try to do it. The thing is, I don't have a GPS watch or anything like that. I thought about getting uh, one, but without mile markers on the course or anything, so you are only you only really could check in every six miles or so to really gauge what your pace was. Right. Uh, I, you know, I couldn't really – Hard to tell. I, I didn't know that I was how much I was slowing down by, so I was just kind of doing it by feel, and, and it worked out pretty well. And then I kind of naturally slowed down. After about, I think, mile 30-ish, the rain started coming – uh, started getting my feet got really wet, which is which is part of the problem eventually, and it got really muddy on the course on the trail sections of the course. So that made it tougher for me. And then by the time I was at like mile 42, the aid station there, I remember I, I was just exactly on pace, and I wasn't really trying to slow down at that point. I was just that's kind of all I could kind of manage um, at without without feeling like I was pushing the intensity too hard. Right. So um, yeah, I mean it, it was. It worked out really well. I was happy with that. Like it was, it wasn't too strict. I didn't feel like I had to uh, hold back way too much, or like feel like I was leaving all this, you know, leaving too much energy in the tank or anything. Uh, it, it, pacing worked out really well in that way. Good, great. Yeah. So, so you mentioned the rain. Uh, talk about that. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I, I, I got to the point. It, it started raining a lot. Obviously, the course got really muddy. My feet got wet, and. I kind of wanted to like keep blaming the rain and like just kind of cursing it. Like, man, I can't believe on this my one day of running a hundred that it's going to rain like this and it's going to happen to the course. Was it was it pouring but, or just steady? You know, steady no, rain? it was never pouring, but it was just steady rain. And I think it was it was for I I don't really know, but it must have been eight or ten hours of rain. It was just a long oh, wow. time of rain. Some of it on and off, but a lot of it was steady. And uh, you know, so I had this sort of like urge to complain about the weather, but really. You know, I had trained for 95 degree heat, thinking that this was going to be could be 90 plus degrees, and I think the high on race day—I don't know what it actually ended up being—but it was the day before that it said it was going to be 69 degrees as the high. Jeez. So that you know that was like perfect. Yeah, I mean, I you know I couldn't have asked for anything better than that. So to to trade that for the rain um, was a pretty good deal. Like I, it, it's it was, I, I guess I would have rather had rain than heat. Right. But um. The only problem was that I wasn't really prepared for it, and I don't know why. I didn't really think about bringing, like, a waterproof shoes because I do have a pair of waterproof New Balance shoes. They have, like, a zipper outside on them, huh. and I, I did a, rain, a run once in pouring rain and didn't get my feet wet at all on them. So they're great. They would have been perfect for this mud because the trails got so muddy that – you know how, like, on single-track trail, if it gets muddy, the uh, – 
like the center of that trail is the lowest point. So when right. it's total slop, like anywhere you step on the trail, you are sliding towards the middle. Towards the center, yeah. Yeah. So it was just it was just horrible to run in. Uh, the the trails were pretty narrow at the part where I was when it was really really muddy, and uh, it was you couldn't get around them. I mean it was it was like high brush on the side, so it was really rough. Um, my feet ended up getting like completely soaked. Once once it happened, the first time it happened was at mile 42, and uh, I had a chance to get the a crew aids. The crew access point was right then, so I got my I changed my shoes, uh, changed socks put some tape on my toes where I was just starting to feel blisters happening and uh, that worked out fine. And then I took off from there. I was feeling really good again. Like I felt all taped up and ready to go. And I was back on my pace and I was like just about to hit that, my, my 11 hour goal for 50 miles. That was my goal. Hit, hit 50 at 11 hours and then take 13 hours to do the second half to finish at 24 hours. Right. And I was, I was hitting that goal. I was right. I was, you know, I might've been like five minutes or 10 minutes behind it. But I was still pretty close to that 13-minute pace, so I knew that uh, because I had I had planned for a 15-minute pace for the second half, that would have been around 13 hours. So I knew I was still running these 13s, and I could have taken a lot of time, you know, put put a bunch of 13 miles, 13-minute miles in, and uh, you know, gotten gotten several minutes ahead of pace, and just hopefully kept going from there. But anyway, uh, all this rain happened, and my feet started getting soaked getting totally muddy like you know you would step in, in mud and your foot would just sink all the way into it oh. um there were hills that were so slick you couldn't you, I mean, you couldn't get up them unless you went kind of off the trail and around them uh they were like downhills it was sliding down a lot of it and like grabbing for trees to try to <laughs> catch yourself and not fall i mean i fell a couple times other people fell it was just such a mess and uh I think I think some I think the lead runners probably weren't affected by this that much. I mean, they might have been in the second half, but I think it was more for the people who were running over ground that that everyone else had already right. ran over. You're so, just tearing up the trail for the people behind you. Yeah. So I think, and it, it was reflected in the in the final results. If you look, um, like the the winner I think was 14 something and set a new course record. There were several other winners or several other runners around 14, I don't know, somewhere in the 14s, and then only like 150 people finished out of out of 260 or something so it was like a 41 percent drop rate or something or 41 percent dnf i guess i don't i guess it's called a dnf if you just keep running yeah. and run out of time um <laughs> so yeah i you know i felt bad because then because anyone behind me i felt like they were you know they were getting even worse than i was right and and not many people behind me did finish because i what was the, I was, what that? was the cutoff was there a cutoff time yeah 30 hours was the cutoff time 30. But there were cutoffs at each age station, so I'm, I'm assuming most people probably. Uh, I would imagine a lot of people dropped at 50, because that was 47 to 50 was the stretch where it was just mud everywhere. Even like the flat spots, it was just so muddy you couldn't, you couldn't. I don't know. It took me, it took me an hour and 45 minutes to run those three miles, or maybe it was like 46 to 49, something like that. Wow. And yeah, at that point, I was just like, that, that was really the only time I questioned whether I was going to finish, because I thought if if the trails are like this for the whole second half of the race. Uh, I don't, you know, even if I'm not tired, I can't navigate these trails any faster than than a half hour per mile. I don't think. So it was that was that was my really my single point of doubt for the entire race. So what did that do to you mentally? Like, uh, you know, if you're in an hour and forty five minutes to run three miles, you know, that had to be tough when you're only halfway through the race. Yeah, it was, and it was. I mean, it was it was mentally tough. It was physically tough because, like, like I said, when you're trying to get through that mud and you're trying to grab one of the trees down hills and and get up, you know, manage some way to get up a hill because it's so muddy you can't even walk up it. Um, that was 
physically tough because I felt like I was probably just destroying my little stabilizer muscles in my ankles and all that, and sure. that would all catch up with me. Um, the worst part of it was that was that the blisters all started then also because I you know I didn't oh so my big mistake was that at mile 42 when it was raining I didn't bring an extra pair of socks with me in my pack because I I carried a Nathan uh, hydration pack with me but without the hydration bladder in there okay and I had a handheld bottle but I you know I had lots of food and electrolyte stuff and whatever I needed in that pack and I just for some reason didn't even occur to me that I should bring extra socks in there so I was in I was in like totally drenched socks. Um, and you know, I got to this point where I was just like, I don't know, like I, I stopped and I took 10 minutes, I think to tape up every single toe with, with this, I just had regular athletic tape, sat down, did that. I was getting, this is on the, on the side of the trail or at an aid station? Side of the trail. Uh, yeah, this was, there was some spot where you just, I don't know, there just weren't that many aid stations. Maybe they were every six miles or eight miles. And, uh, and I wasn't, I wasn't seeing the crew for like another 15, so Okay. I didn't really have a choice. I did eventually ask an aid station, but they didn't have any socks or anything like that. So this was like on a stump in the, in the woods, and I was getting bit by mosquitoes <laughs> and taping up every single toe. And, like, I jammed them back in my shoe and it didn't really fit right because there was so much tape. <laughs> and it was just, like, horrible. And I that's, that's really the only point when I thought I might not finish this race. Uh, it's just – I was just so uncomfortable, and I thought, if, if this is happening, my feet are going to be destroyed by the time I see everyone in 15 miles. And uh, my shoes, the Hoka's, which were which were really great. I mean, I loved the cushioning of them. I I wore some other shoes for a little bit, and uh, just compared to those, the the cushioning on the Hoka's was unbelievable, and it made such a big difference. But they were getting covered in mud, and and they're heavy as they are. So I was thinking, man, these things are going to be soaked for the rest of the race, and I'm going to have to switch to something that's not as good. So I just had this. That's really the time when I thought I really might not finish, uh, because a if I can. First of all, I, I might decide to quit because it's just so hard. Right. And B, it's just even if I even if I do decide to keep going on, I don't know if I can get the course done in the rest of the time. Because I think I think at that point I could have averaged like 20 miles. I figured out in my head to finish under 30 hours, 20 minute miles, I should say. And I thought I don't I don't think I can do that if it's if it's this kind of mud on the course. Right. So. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so I that, like really that was. It's interesting. People talk about these ultras, and I wrote about it a little bit, how you hit this point of, like, just hopelessness, and you hate everything, and you wonder why you did this, and you feel bad about every possible thing, and your brain tries to convince you that you need to quit. Uh, I never actually felt that. Like, this this was the worst I ever felt. And what was interesting was I, I started thinking about it. I thought about what would it mean to quit? What would, you know, what would it mean for... All the crew who came out, who drove out to Ohio from Maryland for the most part, except for Greg, my pacer, who was from Cincinnati. He even he drove four hours. Um, what would it mean for them? What would it mean for all the people on you know read, who read No Meat Athlete, who I had been writing about this for months? Uh, what would it mean for me? Like kind of all the work that had gone into this, all the training. And again, I wrote about this the day before, but like mm-hmm. all the training, all the preparations. And the preparations, like the last week was so much different stuff, trying to figure out food and, and get, you know, nutrition and, and hydration and electrolytes and just figure all that out and what the plan would be for the crew. Um, and I just thought if I had to drive home feeling, you know, knowing I had not accomplished this and that I didn't know when uh, I was going to get another shot to do it, I would feel like I was just sort of stuck. I'd be like, what, you know, what, what do I do now? How can I move on? How can I think about anything else until I successfully run a 100 miler? 
And so, like, as soon as I thought about that stuff, and this this is in the course of 30 seconds, I just thought about that stuff, and it was like, there's no possible way that I'm going to stop. And, like, that that was really it. I just, it, it was pretty amazing, actually, that, I mean, to me, that, you know, that I had questioned this whole time, that I had questioned whether I was going to be able to make it or not. Like, you know, right. was I in shape to run 100 miles? Could I do it? And in this little 30-second interval when I just thought about quitting and what it would mean, the answer was just entirely obvious that that I was not going to stop. Like like there was nothing that would actually make me stop unless it was an injury where I couldn't where I couldn't go fast enough. Right. So after that after that it was like there was never a doubt and there was never I I didn't have any sort of like that depression or that anger or or second guessing and then like it was honestly from there on I don't want to say it was easy because it wasn't easy and the blisters kept getting worse and that was that was by far the worst part like my feet killed me the whole time um but after that after like that that kind of decision was made or it wasn't even a decision it was just sort of like a realization once i had that it was that was it like I, then i just kind of kept going and accepted it and it was fine after that and then i just kind of kept trudging along and some of the miles were slow there were certainly i think probably some 20 minute miles near the end uh-huh. but but uh it, it was it just you know you, i just kept you walk you walk when you have to jog when you can and uh and try not to take too long at the aid stations, and uh, and that was that was really all it was. That's incredible, Matt. You know, because everybody I talk to who's done a, a hundred, and you know, and even myself, you know, after during a fifty and things like that, you know, you just have these really low times when when you just don't think you can do it. And you know, when I imagine you out there um, in the middle of the night, or anybody out there, you know, um, for that long, it's hard to it's hard to believe that they don't have those those really dark times so i think it's just incredible that you were able to get through it that way and uh you know especially after you had just written this post about you know the imposter syndrome and uh you know just not knowing why you were doing it not having a good reason and you talk about when that bad time comes you know like how are you going to convince yourself to keep going if all it is because you don't want to not do it you know right right um, so that's great, you know, and that's awesome that all it took was 30 seconds of just kind of convincing yourself. And Yeah, it was. And, I, you know, I think a big part of it was that I actually really did anticipate all that. Like, I thought about it a lot. It, it would have been no surprise had that come up, all that, you know, that period of, of depression and, like, you know, real questioning of, like, what am I doing? Not just with this, but, like, with my life. Like, why am I putting this time into running and you know whatever else like what am i am i a good dad am i a good husband like all that stuff i think goes through people's minds right and i i think just anticipating it like i when my wife and dad would ask me what you know how i was feeling going into this thing and my mom too i guess she asked me when she because she came one day later but um so once they all asked me this stuff like i would say i was just sort of i wasn't really excited i just said i was kind of scared because i i was anticipating this and i knew how rough it would be and uh like i i had notes on the on the because I had a sheet for them at each aid station for them to like that would say what kind of questions to ask me here, what food I'll probably want, uh, just a bunch of other stuff like that. And I was I, I wrote all these notes in there. It said like at this point I'm probably going to be really really wanting to quit, and you cannot let me <laughs> for a second think that's a good option. Like you have to to unless you like believe there's a serious health issue going on, right? You need to you need to like be solid right. and strong and certain and don't let me consider that. Um, so, so they they were kind of like, well, you you know, you need to have a positive attitude going into this. You can't go into it with that negative of an attitude. But I really think that that attitude helped me. Like, I, you know, it wasn't negative. Like, I'm not going to finish. It was like, 
this is going to be really, really hard, and I don't really know how I'm going to finish or how I'm going to get through that, but I know I have to. And I, I don't know. I think I think having that mentality and just having so many people warn me about this mm-hmm. um, really, really helped because I think I was always expecting it, and it just never, never got that bad. Huh. So, yeah, so I don't know. You know, had, had the blizzards not happened, um, and I'm, we can talk about the rest of the race. We haven't really done that, but I, I think had they not happened, it would have been uh, – a a miraculously like good race like un- unbelievably not as bad as I thought uh, the blisters certainly made it made it tough like it, you know it, that that last fifty miles every step that I took hurt there was there was a a blister or a foot care aid station at like mile seventy five I think and they you know they did some nasty stuff like like popping blisters and all this stuff and uh, taping everything up and after that it was it was helpful for probably five or ten miles and then everything hurt again. <laughs> So like, but without that, if if those, if I hadn't had that, I don't, I can't imagine how good. I mean, I, I would have, I'd be signed up for another one already and ready to go to another one because it would have been, it would have been such an easy thing. Or maybe 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 then I would have run faster and then run into trouble. I don't know who knows, but um, yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I was shocked at how well it went and how how uh, aside from that that blister pain, uh, how how not not horrible it was. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. So yeah. do you think that the blisters were caused mostly by the rain and the and the mud? Yeah, I think they entirely were. Cause I like in my twelve hour race, I didn't have a single blister issue, uh, and that you know that that took me. I think I I think I ran for eleven hours and fifteen minutes or so of that, and made it fifty two miles. Didn't even have like a hot spot of a blister that was coming on. Hmm. So yeah, I don't know. For some reason, recently I have not had blister issues at all. But in this, like my you know my feet were like entirely white and wrinkled when i took my shoes off they were just, just yeah just completely soaked through so I, there's i think there's no way to avoid blisters when when that's happening do you have any any advice for someone who's doing something like that what you know facing those same conditions yeah i mean the very the very best thing that i that i learned and started doing afterwards was have an extra pair of socks with you at all times and then as soon as you step in a because there are several stream crossings and stuff and and that's not uncommon in ultras there are several ultras where or I should say many ultras where there are a lot of, you know, you wade through water up to your knees or something and your, your feet get soaked. So if you, now I don't know in a situation like that, if having socks is enough, maybe your shoes would be so wet that a new pair of socks would just get soaked through. But I had one pair with me after that at all times. So when I would step, my toes would go into the water when I was like doing a stream crossing and a rock would slip a little bit, I would just immediately change the sock and kind of dry my foot off and then I'd be fine. So, you know, my advice would be do that. Um, have waterproof shoes available, like not just trail shoes ideally, but something that, that you know is waterproof. Because a lot of trail shoes are kind of waterproof, but they're, you know, they still let it in. So right. if you can get something like these, I don't know what's New Balance, I forget the name of them, but I can link to those in the in the post. They'll probably be happy I did that because I never really wrote a review about them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, if you, like if I would have had those, I just, I can't imagine how well the race would have gone if I'd had those with me. Interesting. So, yeah, so those would be my two pieces of advice <laughs> for, for blisters. So I definitely want to talk about um, gear and and what you ate and all that stuff. But before we do that, um, you know, you were you spent I don't know, I guess ten hours or something running through the dark all night basically because you didn't finish until the next morning. Uh, and had you trained at all in the dark? Uh, no, I had not. I have when I when I first started trail running. Back when I lived in Maryland, I ran with a group of people who would meet at like seven or eight at night, and uh, and then run, 
for an hour. So I had run some trails in the dark at, at different times. So I knew what it felt like and it wasn't at all foreign to me to, to be doing that. I hadn't really trained in like in the sense of running overnight or for any, any amount of time more than like two hours at, at night. Right. So that but, was kind of new. Yeah. All right. Um, so, well, at this point you were what, you know, uh, 12 hours in, 13 hours in when it got dark more than that, I guess. Uh, more. Yeah. I was, I think I was probably like 16 or 17. Yeah. 16 would have been, uh, nine o'clock PM. So yeah, about 16 hours in is when it got dark. Wow. And, uh, you picked up your pacer at that point. Yep. Picked him up exactly then actually right when it got dark okay. and he had a headlamp. I had, I had a headlamp, but I realized, and I didn't really learn this until the race, but when I have a headlamp, I have to wear a hat because it just it's just the only way it can be comfortable for me. It seems to like it either hurts my forehead or it slides around too much, so I put a hat on. But I I think I keep in a lot of heat if I have a hat on. I I must radiate a lot out the top of my head. So luckily I bought this cheap ten dollar flashlight at Dick Sports, one of those uh you know those little ninety degree bent ones that you carry. Uh-huh. And uh, that worked really well. It burned up the batteries very very quickly. I had to go through three sets of batteries on it in in those 10 hours but i i like that a lot better actually than carrying than wearing a headlamp and a hat so i just did that you were just carrying it in your hand just carrying it in my hand yep i had my headlamp in my pack in case uh in case it failed or something right but i just did that and it really wasn't that bad i mean the first the first few hours it was kind of tough to focus and have you know have to deal with running because this was mostly trails too at that point um and you know having to having to look at like when you were that tired, having to watch for rocks and roots and stuff like that was certainly tough and like a new challenge. And I don't know, it just seemed kind of new and strange. But after a few hours, I got used to it and didn't really think about it that much. So and then and then the bright side of it was that once once the sun came up, it was really nice. Like that's someone wrote on. Well, I didn't realize to see this until afterwards, but someone wrote on Facebook or or a nomad athlete comment uh, that that once the sun comes up, it's like it's like this huge new feeling of of being like renewed energy and like feeling great so i don't know once once the sun came up even though i still had another three or four hours of running left it felt like at that point i was kind of done the race and now it was just sort of like i don't know like a procession to the finish like kind of like (laughs) and the aid station started becoming more frequent the crew access points you know i saw them like three times during the last 15 miles which is kind of a lot compared to the rest of the race so it just it just felt like a very easy finish, and I mean yeah it was painful and took a while. Some of the you know the miles were fifteen to twenty minutes each, but uh, it you know one and like once it, I don't know somehow it just didn't feel like there was any question then. Like I knew I wasn't going to trip on anything or, or roll an ankle or anything weird. You know not that much weird can happen when the sun's out. So it sort of felt like I'd I'd be all right, and and it, that's how it turned out. Mentally, it was the. Uh... You know, in the darkness, I'm sure it was more quiet. You know, was was that an issue at all? Uh, no, it was not an issue. It Had I been by myself, I think it would have. Because even as I was approaching that, that aid station where I picked up Greg, uh, you know, I, it was weird. It was weird being in the woods by yourself at night for me. Not, not like in a scary way because you know, it felt like a fairly safe place to be with other runners in the race. But just very, very lonely feeling mm-hmm. and... uh and I think that's natural when you've been running that long. And yeah, so I mean, I don't know. Had I had to go all night, it would have been rough. I think that that would be a really tough thing to do. And I, I definitely have a lot of respect for people who do that, and people who did that. I know I saw many people, many people in this race who who said they were did not have a crew and were just on their own, no pacer, no crew. And you know that would that would be just a huge added challenge. 
So I'm sure once you've done it once or twice and you've just kind of gotten used to what that feels like, it maybe wouldn't be that hard. But for me, for a first ultra, it definitely was helpful to have a pacer. And, you know, once I had him, it was just, we, we talked most of the time. Uh, we, we had met before, so it wasn't like, it wasn't like uncomfortable when, when we didn't have anything to talk about. We just, you know, we just ran and it was nice and, uh, we got along really well. So I don't know. It, It didn't really feel that, that strange aside from, having to look closely for roots and being kind of scared that I was just going to trip on one and then mess everything up. Right. But uh, were, were you guys kind of just running as, as running partners or was he um, really engaged in your nutrition intake and, you know, that kind of thing? Was he active, actively helping you out in that way? Um, He was, he wasn't doing that. I mean, he certainly would, would, uh, would offer to help me if like, you know, if I wanted, if I, uh, I don't know if I if I had to change the batteries in my light, like he would shine his light on. I mean, obviously he did that sort of right. things. Sure. Um, but uh, but what he what he did that was really good for me, I thought, was he just made it very clear that he did not care at all. Like like you know when we decided to walk and when we decided to run was up to me, and he he actually let me kind of be the front guy most of the time, uh, and just let me set the pace. So he was just there to keep me company, mm-hmm. pretty much. And that's that's exactly what he did, and it was perfect. Uh, I mean, I suppose, I suppose I could have said, no, you stay in front and try to pull me along and try to make me go faster. But I didn't care about that at this point. Like once, once I knew that I was not going to make 24 hours, I didn't care about the pace at all. I just wanted to finish. And that was somewhat of a concern because I was, I was still, you know, I finished at 2840, which is an hour 20 shy, but when I, uh, shy of the cutoff. But when, you know, when we started at, at, when we had 25 miles to go, it wasn't clear that we would finish in that amount of time. And we thought it might be. Um, we could be cutting it close. I didn't know how much I would slow down. A lot of people I talked to during the race said that, like, really the wheels fell off around mile 80 for them. Mm. And, like, you know, that's when everything stopped and everything slowed down, and it was like a limp to the finish from there. So yeah. I was just kind of, like, waiting for that to happen, and I didn't know when it would. And I thought if that happens too early, you know, it could be it could be 25-minute miles after that, and I might not finish. And I thought that would be really the worst thing. Like, if you – once I had made that decision or made that – had that realization that I was going to finish this no matter what or keep trying, I realized I was like, oh my gosh, what if I actually do that and still don't make it? Like, what if I run for 30 hours and it's not enough? <laughs> that would be just, you then you don't get the benefit of getting to quit and just getting to stop and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> get to you know, enjoy it. Yeah. So, so that was kind of a fear for me. But, uh, he, you know, he was, I, I got to the point where I was fairly confident we'd make it and I just, it really worked very, very well for me. Like just, just to have someone to keep me company, and uh, yeah, it was just kind of a security. Like I knew, like if I fell, it would, it would, he'd be there to help. Uh, there was a second light. He had his his headlamp on, mm-hmm. and it just, it just felt easier. He, you know, and he talked to me. He said, you know, are you doing all right? He, like if I, every once in a while I had to walk, uh, he would kind of check in and make sure that it wasn't anything issue or any sort of stomach issue that was going on or anything right. like that. So it was, it was really, really helpful and. uh I'm hugely appreciative of, of him being there to do that. Cool. Very cool. All right. Well, let's talk about that. Um, you, you know, uh, before, during the uh, 12-hour um, podcast, we talked about what you were eating and uh, stomach stuff. And, uh, you know, you talked about dates and bananas and things like that. And you were really concerned about what you were going to be eating throughout the whole thing. So did you have stomach issues? And, and what were you eating? You know, what were you eating throughout this whole thing? Yeah, what was remarkable is that I had I had zero stomach issues, uh, except for like a few times during the last 20 miles or so when it would just for some reason we would start running and I would feel like queasy or something so I would just stop, and then 
basically that was just a signal that I needed to eat something, even if I wasn't feeling hungry. Right. And and once I did, it was fine. So it was amazing because I've you know most of the times when I've done races or or long training runs, it's been after after about 25 miles, I can't really eat anything. I don't want anything at all. And uh, the one big difference here was that I started I was drinking heat the entire time instead of Gatorade. Okay. Um, that happened to be what they had at the aid stations, which I didn't know until that day actually, which was <clears throat> so I I had had a, had because I knew I'd be relying on the crew so much and relying on carrying so much food anyway. I had just planned to carry heat uh, powder with me, little little baggies of it, mm-hmm. and fill up my water bottle when needed with water and and add that in. So I wasn't too concerned about what what they were serving at the race, but that was what they had, so that made it much easier. I didn't have to carry the powder with me, and uh, it it just worked really well. Like I I tried heat a couple times on long runs before this, just just for like two packets of it. I got at the running store just to make sure I liked the taste. And nothing nothing weird happened with it. No. No, like, nausea or anything. And uh, I drank it the entire time. I think I'd tra- I probably drank, like, 15 or 20 bottles of it, you know, my, my handheld 20-ounce bottle, mm-hmm. and, and never never got sick of it, and it never made me get sick of food. So I really think that was the difference, using that instead of Gatorade. Hmm. Uh, really, really helped me. I Besides that, oh, and, and he, by the way, when I was done, my wife said that, she mentioned that Greg, my pacer, had, had noticed that it had this ingredient called a carnosine in it, I think, which is... Which I'm not positive even what that is, uh, but I looked it up on the internet a little bit, and so Greg was saying he thought it wasn't it wasn't a vegan ingredient, and it, yeah, it's like only synthesized in animals products, apparently not in plants. Uh, so I started to get scared. I was like, wow, I've been going doing this whole day with with a non-vegan drink, but then I checked, and as I had thought, I recalled it said that he was vegan friendly on the website and on the on the jug of it. So, you know, I don't know. I'm assuming that the carnosine is, is synthesized somehow in a lab. Uh, even though it says it's only synthesized in animals, I'm assuming that means you can also do it outside of uh, either plants or animals, like in a lab. And I'm right. assuming that's what it is. Otherwise, I can't imagine they would have that vegan-friendly label on there. Um, with you know, Just with the amount of vegans that are involved in, in the sports that use that kind of product is pretty high. Right. So sure. I, I would be pretty shocked if, if that was a non-vegan product. So I was glad to hear that it... Or, or I'm glad to have assumed now that it is. Um, so anyway, besides that, I mean, I I planned for. I realized I think that I was also eating, trying to eat too much. Like I, you know, I don't weigh that much, so there was no reason I need to be. I need to be at the top of this like this range. They say of 250 to 400 calories, and I was always trying to be that per hour. And I was trying to. I was trying to be near the top of that, thinking more is better. And I realized, you know, I don't weigh that much, so maybe I should be down near the bottom of that range. And I just I just kind of tried to like not eat that much. I didn't I didn't try to force anything down early on. I just tried to make sure I like kept a steady stream of food going in. And what I did I tried to I tried to eat one to two dates per hour, uh, one medium potato per hour, and a half a pita with either almond butter or hummus on it, and a little bit of extra salt sprinkled on there, uh, plus roughly one bottle of heat per hour. But I was very careful after I read some articles that people linked me to in the comments. And again, the heat was someone's idea in the comments. They said, go with that instead of Gatorade. So was this idea of uh, only drinking to thirst, and that's what I was going to mm-hmm. get to. Um, there's, there's a great post on irunfar.com about the book Waterlogged and the research that went into it about how drinking to thirst instead of instead of drinking to a schedule, which will make you drink much more often than drinking to thirst usually will, Right. Uh, how that will prevent, you know, according to this research, 100% of hyponatremia cases basically – 
uh, which is which is kind of the the case of being over having too much overhydrated. Yeah, overhydrated and not enough sodium. I think hyponatremia is technically just not having enough sodium, but when you combine it with overhydration, then you get into what is the dangerous condition that people think of as hyponatremia. Right. So, you know, basically, if you just control how much water you're taking and you only drink to thirst, somehow your body regulates the sodium, according to this article in this research, regulates the sodium that it sweats out and everything works out fine. Well, what I did was made sure that I had enough sodium no matter what. I kind of I wasn't too worried about drinking uh, taking in too much sodium because that doesn't seem to have as many bad consequences as not enough does. Uh, and then I just made sure to drink to thirst. And I I think I drank somewhat less than what I had figured out that I was sweating out when I did that test. I figured I was losing about 30 ounces per hour, and that was on a hot day. This day, probably lost much less than that. But still, I was only probably taking in 20 ounces per hour, so that's a, that's way less. Right. And it worked out really, really well. I was I was very happy with how hydration and nutrition in general worked out. But anyway, that schedule, I only stuck with that, uh, and, I, and I only planned to stick with that for the first five or six hours. I knew that after that, it was just a matter of getting some sort of food in me. Like whatever I was hungry for after that, I was willing to eat, assuming it was vegan, of course. So I, you know, I had went, gone to the grocery store and bought tons of stuff, anything I could possibly imagine wanting, different soups, cookies, uh, kind of snacks like pita chips, uh, corn tortillas, refried beans, all this stuff. And luckily, my because my crew vehicle was this RV, they could they had a microwave and they could heat up stuff. So it was it was pretty easy to get food that I actually wanted. And uh, mm-hmm. it all worked out really, really well. So, I was, and did you eat a bunch of that stuff? I did. did. You have soup and and beans and all that? Yes, I did. Uh, and I, uh, I when I when I read a recap post, and that that recap post may come before this. Actually, it will come before this podcast gets published. Um, I'll put an actual list of exactly what I ate in there and what my menu was, what the choices were. But I can just run down very quickly some of the stuff I ate uh, without saying all of it. I had all that he that I mentioned, uh, sunflower seeds in the shell, which I just kind of chewed on and sucked on and spit out eventually. Hmm. I, I would crack the shells in my mouth and then eat the seeds. But uh, I had potatoes, dates, almost a full pack of Numinos, which are like the uh, the healthy version of Oreos, except they're not they're still not healthy by any means, but they're <laughs> they, I guess they are the healthier version, maybe organic or natural. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, if if that's all it is, if, if anything, it, I mean they're still total junk, but you know they they make for good ultra food. So uh, Cliff bars, white rice, uh, avocado. A like no chicken noodle soup from the company called the Amy's company. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boca burger, some coffee, some those pitas that I mentioned, half burrito, tortillas, refried beans, veggie sticks, pita chips, uh, like 15 slices of watermelon at the aid stations. It was so good. Wow. And uh, and then some a little bit of soda at the end. The last like 30 miles, I started drinking soda at the aid stations, which to people who have not run ultras before, that will be uh, surprising, I guess. But at Ultras, that's like a huge thing is drinking soda. It seems to be a really great drink. I don't know about – Doug, do you, have you ever tried soda in Ultras? Yeah, I just uh, – this year I started doing it in, in the two Ultras I did this year, and um, and I really liked it. Yeah, I've, been, I've had really good success with it. Yeah, it's, I don't know if it's if it's like a little bit of caffeine in most of it or if it's just the fact that the sugar is so horribly bad for you that it like goes immediately into your system. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know, but it, it works really well. So I had – I figured about 16 ounces of soda, and yeah, so I mean, and, and yes, people listening to this might might be surprised that that's a lot of junk food. I mean, like coffee and uh, a Boca burger, the Numinos, but really, like, going into this, I, I didn't, my plan was was uh, 
keep my keep my brain and stomach happy really like and just do what I could to keep putting food in. Um, if I w- if I was running ultras all the time, I would probably try to change that up a little bit and try to make sure I was taking in healthier food because you know that's still what that's still that's 24 hours of binging on junk food basically. <laughs> and I mean some of it was good, but so if I were doing this like every two weeks, then I would probably want to rethink that. But as rarely as I actually race in an ultra like this, I don't I don't care at all. <laughs> yeah, you know I mean I guess you're just really trying to get. The calories and and the salts and you know just whatever will settle your stomach. So yeah, and as we've talked about before, it's probably not you know that junk food is probably not the best way to fuel an ultra if you're trying to win. Like Brian Powell told us, he thought really it was probably just just the sugars is really what you need. Right. And uh, you know the junk food is there to keep your brain happy and make you not want to quit. Which right. is which I accepted going in that that was that was the league I was in. I was not in the uh, in the USA track and field <laughs> this race. I was in the the beat the 30 quit. hour cut out ver- cut off version yeah so um yeah cool. so i mean that that worked really well i was i was very very happy with how well that worked uh my crew was awesome with with making food and bringing it to me and like you know i would call ahead and say i was kind of in the mood for this and then i would get there and wouldn't actually want it after they cooked it <laughs> it's like so i don't know i mean they were awesome in in doing that and being cool about it and not not being annoyed with me and i don't know i was i was just very very happy with that all with how that all went great yeah. So I'm dying to hear about the Hoka's. <laughs> they worked. They worked really well. Yeah. Uh, mine are the Bondi B or I couldn't. You know, there's some. I can't really tell what's what. But there's there's Bondi two and there's Bondi B and I don't know if they're supposed to be the same thing. But I think mine are Bondi B. Uh, so they're not the trail version, which I kind of regretted, especially when the mud came, because okay. it would have been nice to have a little bit more waterproofness and more grip on some of those uphills and downhills. Yeah. Uh, but but man, I put on I bought a pair of Brooks um Pure Flow, Pure Flow 2, which I love the Pure Drift. Figured Pure Flow 2 will be good for this because it's a little bit more substantial shoe and I already know that the Pure Drift fixed me so well and I didn't want to have many new variables, so I thought that would be perfect. And man, I put that on at, at mile 27 or something and just I couldn't believe how how much impact I started feeling. So I switched back after when I saw the crew again at 42 or 41. And it was like it was just like heaven again. Like I was, it just felt so good on my feet. Wow. How how yeah like I don't know. And, and I'm I'm hearing more and more about these things. I heard on I didn't listen yet, but I heard on Rich Roll's podcast about where he crewed with uh, crewed for Dean Carnassus. They talked about it a lot too, and just how everyone had them. Yeah. And how 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 just great they are. So yeah, it's really a great shoe. It occurred to me that I have not verified whether or not they are vegan friendly or not. I I tend to forget that with shoes for some reason. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't. I I think about it a lot, and I always often wonder it. When I actually get excited about a shoe and go buy it, I totally forget to check if it's vegan. Probably because I'm used to buying Brooks fairly often, and knowing right. that theirs always are. But uh, I don't know. I'd be interested if someone would check this. Michael Arnstein, I knew. I saw he recommended it, so I'm thinking maybe he checked that out. I don't know if he cares that much about the ethical thing, or if it's more about health for him. Um, but I don't know. I'd like to find that out actually. I, and I really hope they are, because I I don't I don't know if I I don't know if I could do another ultra without them. Like having done it really? once, it just even like, even a shorter even a 50k or a 50 miler. Uh 50k I could do, but but 50 miler having felt the difference, it would be very difficult to go back. It's not that I couldn't do it. I mean I right because I've done it before, but I don't know. It would just be it would just feel very uh very difficult. I I would I would probably be obsessing about the foot pain. 
you know, by comparison. So yeah. they were they were really great. I love them for that reason. One time I had like a little ankle roll type issue. Didn't actually feel any pain with it, but just you know noticed that my ankle rolled in a situation where probably it wouldn't have done it with like a more you know lower profile minimalist shoe on. And that that is like the big risk. That they're so high up that if you are running trails with those kind of shoes, then uh, there's there's a bigger chance of that happening, like a an ankle roll or or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I love them. I mean, they were they were just great for this. So cool. I was I was really really pleased with that. I'm glad I bought them. So yeah. is that are they something that you're gonna wear every day? You know, like uh, for everyday runs, or is this no? More I, just no. For like if I were running a marathon, because they are heavy, and I was I was thinking if I were just running a marathon on roads, you know, I, I could definitely tolerate the the pain, not the pain, but like you know, wear a very minimalist shoe, and that's what I've done recently. Right. And uh, and I think I would still do that because, you know, like by the end of a marathon in a minimalist shoe, your feet maybe are hurting a little bit, but it's not like in an ultra where that's like a limiting factor in, in how you're doing because it's just like – because, you know, it, it seems like feet really are the limiting factor in races over 50 miles. Uh, they, right. they just seem to be the thing that goes first for people, assuming you're in like a decent enough shape to, to run that far. Mm-hmm. So – yeah, I mean, like when I go, you know, a normal five or seven mile road run, for the most part, I will not wear hokas. I don't think. Maybe, maybe I'll do it for more long runs, but probably still not all of them because I wouldn't want to depend on them entirely, like for marathon distance runs or anything like that. Sure. I've uh, I've noticed the more I see them, the less goofy they look. Do you feel <laughs> Do you feel less goofy when you're in them now than you did before? I mean, certainly at an ultra, yeah, because they're everywhere. So it's just like they're totally. Everyone has them, and it's just it's just like you know one out of two people are wearing the shoe, so it doesn't feel goofy at all. Uh, when I look at the pictures of myself, they still look pretty big, but uh, yeah, I don't know. No, I'm kind of used to them now, so not really. And and you did only have one pair, right? So when they got wet, you know, after the muddy section, you you still had to put them back on, right? Yes, uh, I had my dad again. Great that we had this RV because he uh, took a hair dryer and like. While I was getting my toes taped up by my wife, bless her soul for doing that, taking <laughs> up my toes, and they were already soaked and wet and like blistered already. You know, removing the tape that I had put on that was now muddy and crumbled up and just, just terrible. So she did that, and he like, you know, I ate some soup or something, and he went and blow dried the shoes with the hair dryer. So um, they got they got pretty pretty dry after that, and managed to stay dry. I and mean, they kept getting muddy after that, but somehow I managed to avoid. Maybe I was just more careful. I managed to avoid like stepping in mud puddles, but I just kind of right. they got kicked in mud, but didn't seem to get that wet afterwards. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yep. So, so other than the shoes, um, do you have any other gear? You said you were carrying the Nathan hydration vest without the without the fuel or without the uh, right water without bladder. The bladder. Yep. And I think I think I learned that from Mike Arnstein as well in that same uh, ultra running video I'm talking about on YouTube. And he actually put out a second one, like a like a version two, I think, at the next year of his Woodstock Fruit Festival where he did the first one. And that might have been the one where he talked about the Nathan Pack. I'm not sure, but I think it was him where I got the idea. And I'm glad I did because that was that was really a good idea. I was wondering what I was going to do with food, and the, I bought that I bought a new Nathan bottle, a Quick Draw something bottle, mm-hmm. and it worked really well. And it has a pouch where I could carry my cell phone in it. But I was I was thinking I had to cram all my stuff I wanted it in there. And my pockets and my shorts. I wear like a pair of book shorts that have, have a lot of good pockets in them. But like on that 26-mile gap when I didn't see the crew for that long, you know, that would have been a lot of stuff to carry with me. Sure. With having to rely on aid stations where like fruit, like I said, was the only thing I could eat. So 
Yeah. Uh, it was it was good to have that pack for sure. And you were carrying you know food and what else? Your headlamp, I guess. I carried food, the headlamp when it was necessary or when I thought I might be running until dark. I was you know had it in case. Uh, things like extra batteries for the headlamp. Um, I always had made sure I had like a couple of those nun tablets or noon tablets, whatever they're however that's pronounced. Uh-huh. Uh, some indoor lights, like a spare gel. Uh, what else? Food. Oh, like a long sleeve shirt at night I had in there because I kept switching back and forth. Um, I think that's oh the extra pair of socks. So you know I mean just kind of a bunch of random stuff. Then my little menu of what foods I might have because I wanted to have that so that I would. Just so that I could call ahead and tell people that I wanted to have this thing. Um, you know, I was just like, I'd heard some stories of people who, who really said that their stomachs, you know, completely revolted and they wouldn't take anything after 50 miles, but the crew convinced them to eat some soup or convinced them to eat something and like that saved them. Like once they got that, it turned around their spirits and everything. So I just, I was just wanted to be really prepared for that, make sure I knew what all the food options were for me. And uh, just that if there was anything that sounded good, that I would find it, basically, and not, not forget that I had it. Were, were so, you craving certain things? You know, you said you called ahead for certain items, but, were, I mean, were there things that just you couldn't get out of your head that you really needed, like soup right then or or uh, You know, it wasn't that I was craving them. It was more like it was the only thing on the menu that sounded any good. Like, most of the stuff just didn't sound good anymore once it had enough of it. Right. Like, dates. Like, you know, dates worked for about 20 miles, and then I just couldn't didn't want anymore so yeah it was just a matter of having enough stuff i think that that always something sounded somewhat good and interesting uh yeah the numinos were like a constant by the end after about 50 miles they were something that i took every aid station took like three of those with me and uh or not every every crew access aid station i should say yeah uh yeah no there wasn't much craving i did crave coffee at some point and luckily i had people make me some of that and uh yeah, I'm looking at my list. Not that much else that I crave. The watermelon stuff, I I did kind of look forward to that sometimes at the uh, non-crew aid stations. But, yeah. Cool. You know, nothing nothing that crazy with food, I don't think. So so before we get on to uh, recovery and all that, um, any other stories that you that I haven't asked about that you're dying <laughs> to tell? <laughs> uh, let's see. Not, not really that I can think of. I mean, the the mud was the huge story really of the day for me, right? And and that sliding around in it and stuff like that was that was kind of weird. At some point, at one point, I thought I really messed up my elbow trying to grab onto a tree because I just <laughs> I realized like to lift up my uh my bottle really hurt my elbow and I didn't know what it was. Yikes. And it it was getting worse. And this was during that period when like everything was going bad and I was really questioning things. But I I thought it was going to be all swollen and bad the next day. But like really by the time I finished, it wasn't bad anymore. So I don't know what that was. Uh, didn't really see any like weird animals. I saw a, there was a bat on the ground. We saw a mouse <laughs> at night. Uh, heard a wild boar, according to Greg, who I guess maybe he knows what wild boars sound like. He <laughs> said claimed wow. it was a wild boar. Yeah, it was. It was like some sort of whining. It sounded like a pig squealing. So it, it, maybe uh-huh. maybe that's what it was. Um, but yeah, not that many like. I don't know. Not not really that many stories. Interestingly, at mile 98, there were 60 stairs you had to climb up, which is fun. <laughs> um, and oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's like funny. one of the, I think it's sort of one of the characteristics of the race that a lot of people, because like everyone was talking about these stairs at mile 98. Yeah. And, uh, but you know what? Like I, 
it was on those stairs at mile 98. I realized that if this race was longer, I could have kept going because I they were not like it wasn't that hard. I wasn't limping up the stairs or anything. I was worried about my feet with each step because the blisters were hurting. Right. But like as far as my quads went and everything like that, I don't know. I guess I had paced it well enough, and I think I think really the blisters kind of regulated my pace. Like they were just sort of like a governor on me that didn't let me go too fast. That if like if you had told me the race was I had to go ten or fifteen more miles, I think I could have managed it. I would have been I would have been devastated that I wasn't done. But like I don't know. Like I would I guess I would expect that to have to climb sixty steps at that point. Like when I saw that on I saw it on someone had a YouTube video and I watched that and he did it and he was just like hobbling up there and I thought you know I thought I'm gonna be like that too. Right. And and I would I would think that's how you should be at the end of a hundred. That you've that you've run well and you know put the amount of energy that you should and I would think you you would have a terrible time getting up sixty stairs, but uh, I don't know I, I felt like they were they weren't that hard it was just kind of like normal stairs and uh, I don't know it just made me realize that that I had something left so the race could have been longer or I could have run faster had it not been for the pain and the blisters uh, so that you know that was good that was definitely like kind of the theme of the of the day for me was that it just wasn't really as hard as i thought it would be it was kind of like and the same thing with my first 50 mile i had the same feeling i think i guess with these with these distances like probably if i were to do another 100 now not now but in in two or three months or whatever i would probably have a much much worse day because like my second 50 mile was way worse than my first because i wasn't as scared of it and i wasn't you know i wasn't so careful with the pacing Right. So if I were to run another 100, I would probably get the blister issue figured out. I'd make sure that I had the socks or whatever shoes I needed, and I'd probably take the pace out a little bit faster, knowing how well this one went, and I'd probably crash at 60 miles and then and then just you know hate it and go through what what everyone goes through with 100 usually. So I I think it might be um, not a coincidence that my first race at each of these distances has has felt um, easier than I had expected it would. I don't know, Matt. I think you're. It sound like a beast to me, man. This is <laughs> an incredible report. It's not at all. You know, I was. So I was following along, like I mentioned, through these emails throughout the day, and uh, you know, throughout the night. And I woke up Sunday morning, and I knew that you were either about to finish or, or right around finishing, and um, and you hadn't quite finished yet, and, and I was just imagining you just suffering so badly, (laughs) you know, 26 26 hours in, you know, and uh, it sounds like you just had a great day out there. Yeah, I I did. And like, I didn't really realize this until now, but maybe those blisters were kind of a blessing in that they kept me from going really that really too fast. Like, because I had I not gotten them at mile 50, I would have been still kind of focused on that 13 minute pace. I think I think would have shifted to thinking about pace then. And I would have thought, I'm kind of right on my pace. If I can put in a bunch of 13-minute miles now, like 10 or 20 of them, then, you know, I'd, I'd be clocking, I'd be banking a lot of time against my 15-minute projection for the second half, and could really right. aim at 24 hours. And I think so. Maybe, maybe had I done that or attempted to do that, it would have led to a pretty strong crash at 60 or 70. And and the blisters prevented me from doing that. I just, I was just in too much pain that I had to walk more than that, and I had to go slowly. So uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's what it. Cause, I mean, because you, I mean, I did finish five hours slower than I had anticipated, and it's not like my anticipation was, or not that not that my estimate was based on anything really reliable. It was just kind of like what I, based on what I could do in a fifty, and based on how I felt. Um, I I just had the idea that twenty four hours was reasonable, and I still think it would have been had I, had it not been for the blisters. So 
given that, and given that I was five hours slower than what I still think was was you know was kind of a reasonable estimate, uh, you know that kind of explains why why it wasn't maybe as you know as painful as as I had thought, or as probably others mm-hmm. like you expected it expected it would be. Right, right. Were you bummed at all when when you realized twenty four was out of the out of reach? Um. Not really, because because as soon as that went out of reach, was at the was at the same time when the entire race started to seem out of reach. Like as soon, you know, okay. I, like going into fifty, I felt like I was going to do it, and then I hit all these muddy miles where it was where it was the hour and forty five minutes to run three miles, and at that point it shifted from like worrying about that to to worrying about the the race itself, and yeah, the, I mean then I don't know. At that point, once I started worrying about and realizing that I had to run twenty minute miles or something for the rest of the race, and thinking I don't know if I can do that with this mud. It was like as soon as that became a worry, I, did, I just stopped caring about twenty four. It just didn't. Yeah. I just I just wanted to finish. Like I, I just thought how how devastating it would be to to not finish at all or or try that hard and get to mile twenty nine and realize the time was up or something. Not sorry, right. hour twenty nine of running and maybe be ninety miles in and realize it was not going to happen. Right. So yeah, I don't know. I didn't I didn't worry about that. And like and I think that's also I I wrote an email to a friend of mine who has done many many hundreds. Uh, a guy I used to run with in Maryland, and I had mentioned this 24-hour goal, or or I didn't even call it a goal. I was I was not calling it that anymore. And I said that's kind of my estimate, uh, my target that I'm pacing towards. And uh, you know, what do you think about about aiming for 11 hours for the first half and 13 for the second? Does that sound reasonable? And he said he said honestly, I would I would put that goal out of your head because if you start feeling that goal slip away when you're when you're at mile 70 or 80 and it's getting really hard, he said that can be just one more big thing, one more kind of reason to quit. Like when, when everything else is working against you, when your mind's trying to convince you that this is not good for your body and you're abusing your pacers or you, and your crew, he said, you know, if you, you start feeling that goal time slip away and you see that, he said that it can just be enough to make you quit entirely. Hmm. So even though that was, that was still my target and I was still pacing on, on that kind of schedule, it really wasn't like, I just, I did, didn't let that be a goal. I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want to, to to see that going away because I've I've felt that before when when all those years of trying to qualify for Boston, when you see the pace group kind of like, you see all like I was on you know I'd be on a three hour pace and I'd see them pass me and then I'd see the three oh five pass me and then I'd see the three ten pass me, right. and like you know that was kind of a you know a huge sinking feeling to see that happen, so I I imagined how that would be in this and I thought yeah that would be pretty bad, <laughs> so yeah I, I know I tried not to worry about twenty four hours at all after that I just figured finish the race and, and I'd be happy. Good. And I was, and am. <laughs> Great. Great. Yeah. So now it's, uh, we're like two days out, three days out from, um, the finish. Yep. How, how is your body holding up? It's very good. Yesterday was, uh, was tough waking up. Cause you know, yesterday was the first day that I woke up on a new day. Cause I finished it around, uh, I guess a little before 10 AM on Sunday. Right. So Monday morning woke up and felt, Pretty bad. I had slept a whole lot, which is great. I got like 11 hours of sleep plus probably five in the afternoon. So a ton of sleep, which was good. Uh, my legs were really sore. My feet had a lot of soreness in them. Like the blisters were one thing. They were really bad. But there was also a lot of just like bruised sort of feeling soreness. Uh, that was that was rough. Made it hard to walk anywhere. I just didn't feel like doing any walking. Luckily, we were in the car all day, so I didn't have to <laughs> driving home. And uh, today, I actually feel really, really good. Like... I I could go for a run now without a problem. I think the blisters wow. are a little bit of an issue still, but they're kind of they're healing up. They're not they don't hurt me with every step walking around anymore. Right. And 
and yeah, legs feel fine. Like a little bit, maybe a little tired on stairs and things, but not no more soreness or anything like that. So that's good. And honestly, I, I attribute that a lot to the Hoka's because I've I noticed very quickly with those that I could go for a 20 mile run and not feel any pain the next day. Whereas you know, basically every run I've done in my life, if I do a 20 mile run, the next day I feel it in my knees. Not not just like tiredness, but like actual a little bit of joint pain or maybe it's maybe it's muscular pain. It feels like it's like the sides of the knee, mm-hmm. just like you know, just like a very minor little bit of pain. But I I distinctly noticed with the hokas that I did not feel that the next day. I just, all I felt was kind of tiredness. Like if I had to walk upstairs, I would be tired, but no pain. So I I think that really did play a big part. I think they just absorbed so much of that shock, and kind of I, I don't know that much about the science of how it works, but they basically they basically are rockers. So they encourage you to still do the midfoot strike, uh, which I which I think probably lessens your impact over a heel strike. And uh yeah, I don't know. I just think I think they do a really great job of of uh minimizing the impacts to your leg. So I I, I don't credit myself or my super fitness with, with feeling pretty good today. I I really credit the shoes. Well that's I mean that's great. It's incredible that you can you feel like you can go out for another run. Yeah. yeah not that I did, by no means. <laughs> but if, if someone told me to, I, I think I could. <laughs> Well, so, so what is next? Have you uh, picked out your next hundred? <laughs> I haven't. I mean, I've 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 really enjoyed being able to think about that uh-huh. because, like, this hundred. I was thinking about how long I've wanted to do this, and I've wanted to do it for a long time. It's been like probably three, maybe four years now that I I think I signed up for one like three years ago and didn't didn't actually end up running for it, or even didn't end up running it or start training for it, just because I think it sort of felt overwhelming. Right. But uh. This run, you know, I I only officially trained for this for six months, but last summer I had that little running streak, very small, little cute little running streak compared to yours. Now, <laughs> um, mine was like seventy days or something, but I considered that to be part of. That was kind of like for me the beginning of this hundred mile training. We had done the uh, the rock and roll marathon in D.C. with right. the Nomad Athlete Group. That was in March of 2012, I think. Yeah. So you know, I I sort of considered that because I, I was not really in good running shape before that race I, I had taken some time off after a previous really bad ultra and uh, just decided I did not want to do that kind of running I had gone to the gym and stuff and just kind of just did some different stuff for a while so I, I ran that marathon and then I that was in that was in March 2012 so most of the training for that was in in fall and winter of 2011 so really it feels to me like that has kind of, that was kind of the beginning of this so it's been almost two years now of training not not solid training but but on and off periods where it felt like i was building towards something like this so um it's it's that same feeling i had after boston after i qualified for boston where it was like wow i I don't have a big running goal right now i don't have any reason to go out and run or that i have to and for me that you know having those goals is really what motivates me i'm not like a lot of runners where where just the running itself is that motivating for me mm-hmm. so it's just kind of interesting and uh, a little bit scary. Like I, I feel like I need to have another goal or else I will let myself stop running and get out of shape. I've seen that happen before. So I need to choose something, but I don't really know what. Um, I'm not even sure that I would do another 100. I mean, it was it was fun and it was interesting. I don't know if uh, I don't know if 24 hours is like motivating enough goal for me to do it. It doesn't feel. I don't know. Like. Yeah, I mean, I have tremendous respect for people who do it, especially those who do it on, on a course like Western Stage or something. And I, having done this on on this course, which is, well, you know, it was a tough course, but it, nothing compared to Western States. Right. I mean, I, I can't imagine running a 24-hour 
hundred on a course like that with those kind of elevation changes. So, I mean, that's kind of cool. I, for some reason, to me, it, it's not it's not like an exciting goal, like just running a first hundred is. Right. So I honestly don't know. I don't know what I will do next. Um, we have this relay coming up in September. No, October. This is October. the first time. Yeah, yep. we haven't talked about because this this just happened. Um, for those listening, Doug and I are going to do a relay with a bunch of my friends in DC, and it's the Ragnar DC. I don't really know that much about the course. You you know Doug what it does or where it goes? Um, I believe it starts in Cumberland, Maryland. Does that sound right? Yes, that's right. And and runs to National Harbor, which is actually not in DC. It's um in Maryland. Um, but yeah, it's what a hundred or two hundred miles away or something like that. And is that where the casino is? Is there like a big uh, gambling place there? There's um, about to be. All those laws just passed in Maryland a couple of years, like two years ago. Okay. Um, not, and, not October, probably. Yeah. Well, well, when uh, when Obama was reelected, whenever that was. No, but I mean, it won't be done by. October. Oh, oh. Um. You know, I have no idea. No idea. Okay. But it's not done yet. I know that. Um. But yeah, yeah. So uh, it runs from Cumberland to National Harbor, and I think it's you know similar to the rest of the Ragnars where. Um, you know, you have your teams and a bunch of check-in points and yeah, you, you did one of these, right? You did, I did, not, I a did one, not a Ragnar Blue Ridge Relay, but it was the same format. We're doing the ultra division, uh, which is six people running 200 miles. So each person runs somewhere between 25 and like 38 miles, I think, depending on which, which like assignment, uh, you know, how, how your team divides up the miles. So, right. uh, yeah, that will be like a little bit of an ultra. I mean, to me, that kind of felt equivalent to like a trail marathon would feel, even though it wasn't on trails. Uh, you know, it felt, felt like a marathon, maybe a little, maybe a little harder, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's certainly a reason to stay in shape. And just because I, when I did it last time, it was so much fun to like the, the kind of the team, I, I don't know the word, but the, the, uh, I'm blanking on the word, but you know, the, the feeling of like, what'd you say? Camaraderie. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. Like where you don't want to let the team down, you want to do really great. You want to collect road kills where you pass the other people and not not be road killed yourself. Right. And uh, just go really fast for your team. I mean, I, don't, I ended up running it a lot faster than I had planned to. I thought I was just gonna take it really easy, make sure I could finish. But uh, you end up running those legs pretty fast because you get a break after them, after right. each of each of the six legs. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm I'm looking forward to being in shape for that, and I think it'll be good to. To be able to get like do a little bit more faster speed work training since it's, since it's not a hundred miler, it's I think I'll probably do that one of the longer legs as I imagine you probably will too, Doug. I don't know if they've given us assignments, but um, I don't think anyone else has run a fifty miler besides you and I. So okay, we will probably have the two longest legs, but uh, that'll be good. I don't know for me that will be good to uh, to train for something that's a shorter distance and get to do sure get to do some runs that are more about speed and and strength than uh than just simply endurance and like going out there for long slow miles so that will be fun but i don't really know what's next i haven't decided uh, training for a fast marathon could be fun and maybe maybe this relay will be like a transition into that right uh, i would love to break three hours in a marathon still and that that could be exciting uh for me i think like you know that could i could be at a point where like that's right for me it felt after i qualified for boston like that was kind of interesting but it was not as exciting as training for a 50 miler was, so then I kind of like went down this rabbit hole of ultra marathons. <laughs> but I don't know. I, I honestly don't know what's what's next, and uh, I'm kind of enjoying not knowing. I guess just sort of trying to figure figure out what it is. 
Yeah, well, you know, you'll be um, spending at least a month, two months, right, touring the country. Yep, um, probably so a month and a half, and that will, and half, that, will, so... that will coincide with our relay. So that, that relay will be, like, the first weekend when I am officially out on tour. <laughs> uh, so my DC stop will be, I think the next, I think the night after we are done, I'll do a, a DC event. And so okay. Maybe a little bit tired, but I'll just crash on your couch or something for a few hours, I'm sure, Doug, and then yep. get out there, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, you can sign books at all the aid stations and that kind of thing. So. <laughs> right. I'm sure I'll be in a mood to do that. <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, I'm sure you'll have plenty of time to run with folks on the, uh, yeah. On the book tour. Maybe. Yes, there will probably be a lot of runs on that, I imagine. So that would be good. That would be fun. Cool. Yeah. So well, that's, that, that's it, huh? Yeah, I think so. You know, I'm super impressed, and, you know, <laughs> congratulations are definitely in order. I know it's been something that's been on your mind for a long time now, so. Yeah, it has. It was, You know, and it's, it's something that, like, even as late as last year, I wondered, uh, I wonder if if 100 miles if 100 miles was always going to be like the thing that I didn't do that I kind of thought I would do and signed up for but never actually completed and I don't know even after like even after our DC marathon last year I felt like I was at a point cuz I moved to Asheville and didn't do a lot of running for the first month or two we were just kind of like drinking beer and not really doing anything else um except for being parents of course which we did not drink beer for <laughs> but uh you know I I felt like I was just out of running shape even though we just done a marathon and I I just wondered like I thought if I don't do a hundred soon, I'm never gonna do it. So, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't want it to be the thing that I didn't. That I didn't do. That I had hoped to. So, it, you know, it's a great feeling to have gotten it done, and it it was fun. And I felt like, honestly, I think that moment when I learned, when I asked myself if I was going to quit or if I could, and like, just realized like that that was not even an option. Like it was like no question, would I possibly quit? Like even like I couldn't even entertain the idea of doing it. Just with all, and part of it was, was with kind of the accountability and having the blog and having, you know, 40,000 people on the Facebook page and, you know, just having all those people that I would have to say, I, I willfully, you know, I just, I quit. I, I decided to stop at mile 50 or 60 or whatever. Right. Like that was just too much. It was just no chance that I would do that. I just couldn't. Uh, and, and I realize not everyone has that, but, <laughs> but you can by, by really involving people who are close to you and, and making them know how much, training you're doing and how much it means to you and you know whatever else making an email list and just telling them starting a blog i mean you can simple to start a blog about your training and just show it only to your family if that's all you wanted right so th- i don't know that was a huge factor but anyway what i what was really amazing to me and i realized it right then was like just just how powerful that was like understanding that in an instant i could just kind of decide or realize that i was not going to stop something until i did it or achieved it so i mean you could you can i could apply that anywhere and, and if i could kind of have that same i guess it might be tough in certain situations to get that same accountability depending on what what the goal is but i don't know it was just a pretty powerful thing to realize that that like all it was was it was a simple decision in my head of, of mm-hmm. like no that's absolutely not going to happen that i would quit and i'm going to do this no matter what happens i don't know somehow that it, it felt like that was a really important moment for me and i felt like it it has a lot of applications that, that you know, where I'll be able to use that and realize that I have that kind of strength uh, in places that aren't don't involve running, of course. Awesome. So, yeah, yeah, it was. It was, and I think I think you probably can't go through a hundred without learning something like that about yourself, 
uh, even if you quit, I think you probably learn a tremendous about 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 what that feels like and and uh, whether it was the right or wrong decision. I mean, I I think you can't you can't attempt something that that is this hard, assuming you're like a normal person, like like most people listening to this and like we are, uh, and not someone who can just who is just has is born with the ability to run 100 milers, uh, which few people probably are. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I think you can't do something like this or attempt it without without learning a tremendous amount about yourself, both in the training and in the actual event itself. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I would encourage people out there, assuming it's assuming you're not doing something stupid where you're gonna get hurt. I mean, my experience was great with this first hundred, and I, I would encourage you to, you know, set your sights on it if it interests you, and and do the necessary training, and do do a 50 miler before you do it. Don't just try to go from a marathon to a hundred, of course, but uh. Be smart, and I, I think I think it's a, it was a great great experience, and uh, I'm I'm not sure if I'll do another one or or if or what's going to be next, but it, all in all, it was it was a really great experience, and I'm I'm so glad that I did it. Awesome. Well, you definitely inspired me, and um, hey, you're next. I know. I've been you know following you following along, following you along throughout this training, and and then through the race, and I don't know, man. It's I've got the bug. Yeah, happen. and you, I mean, and you have you have the ultra experience to do it. You have as much as I did, pretty much, when I started training for this two two fifties, right? Yeah, two fifties. Yeah. Yeah, and faster than me in both of them. So I think there's you know there's no reason you couldn't start that, except for that little wedding thing you have coming up. That might, yeah. <laughs> might yeah. be a little hitching it, but just give it a few months. That that'll be done soon, you know. We'll work on it when I'm when I'm in town. All right, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, thanks for thanks for chatting today, Matt. I'm, it's been great uh, listening to you, uh, listen to the stories and hearing about how it goes. And I'm sure all the listeners enjoyed it as well. Yeah, any, thank you. Any other Nomad Athlete updates or anything that you need to announce? Uh, not too much. I'm going to announce some sort of uh, some sort of pre-order deal with the with the book. The book is now out and available for pre-order. By the way, you can you can go uh, to any of those sites, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Or anywhere books are sold is what I'm supposed to say, uh, so as not to offend non-traditional bookstores who are selling the book. Uh, so we'll put a link to anywhere books are sold on there. And but anyway, you I mean, you can pre-order it now. But at some point we'll be doing some like a deal where you'll get some sort of bonuses. I don't know, maybe maybe some sort of webinar access, maybe a little ebook or two, and some stuff like that. And anyone who has pre-ordered it. Before that, of course, we'll get that stuff too if they just email me or whatever. So, um, don't hesitate to email to to pre-order it. But but you can know that that thing's coming along. Uh, we're also going to release the triathlon roadmap soon. Susan and I have finished that up. Um, just doing one interview with with a fairly high-profile vegetarian triathlete, which I'm excited about. Don't want to reveal any names yet, but that will be soon, and uh, that should be out within like a within two weeks or so. Cool. So uh, yeah, so that's those are sort of the only big things right now um working on the book tour trying to pick out locations and venues and really a lot of fun doing that i'm excited for that like beyond beyond belief it, i can't wait to do that it's going to be a lot of fun it seems like uh you've gotten a lot of good response from it too a lot of people yeah there has been there has been a lot of that so i'm looking for, i think i think i'm going to meet a lot of people and get to do like you said a lot of runs I don't, I don't know that you know i don't think they'll all be big huge bombshell events i think there will be a few in some of the big cities that are pretty big deals, but I think for the most part they're going to be fun little things. I mean, you know, I would say 20 people maybe would be a, would be like an average number at a lot of these things. I don't know, that's just mm-hmm. a total guess. But 
Um, if it is that, I think that would be a really, really nice sized group and, you know, just get a chance to really talk to people and run with people and, uh, do what else, go get some food and beers or whatever. Cool. And, uh, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. So, um, looking forward to that. So great. I guess that's it, Doug. You, I mean, great job interviewing. I enjoyed, enjoyed this, this little format today of being the interviewee. Yeah, it was fun. Not the host. Yeah. So good job to you. Thanks. And thanks everyone for, uh, for listening to me talk here for an hour and a half or whatever it's been. Uh, yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> Take care, Matt. All right. See you later, Doug. Bye. Bye.